Hello, Kevin. Awesome. You guys are nerds. Damn right. Oh, Kevin, you're so witty. I would stab someone in the face. Oh, that's gross. I'm cutting this, by the way. <laughs> Bad Philosophy, episode 114, recorded on February 17th, 2012. Wiki Sorry. Hello, everyone. Welcome in. One, two, bad philosophy, upsetting the balance of reality, one rabbit trail at a time. I am your host, Stephen Torrance, and we are back for episode 114. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Kevin Saunders. And uh, Kevin, what's, Hi there. That, what's that you got in your hand? Uh, it appears to be a Shiner Dortmunder-style spring ale. Mm. Now, I don't know what Dortmunder-style means, but it's a pretty tasty ale. Yeah. Fairly uh, Actually, let's Google clear it from the here. looks of things. Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, as clear as it can be through a brown bottle. Well, yeah, but I'm saying I'm not seeing a lot of discoloration between the, the liquid inside the bottle and the bottle itself. Ah, yes. Doing a comparison there of the, the change, as it were. Um, German Beer Institute. Um, Definitely a hoppier beer. Mm. Dortmunder. Uh, uh, I'm not usually a huge fan of, of the hop. A hearty brew for hearty people. Uh, a Westphalian lager that originated in Germany's steel and coal district along the river Ruhr. In the 19th century, Dortmunder is the laborer's answer to the elegant, aromatic, deep golden pilsner from Bohemia and the mm. straw blonde, brilliant, malty Munich Hel- Helles? Hmm. Dortmunder is a full-bodied, moderately hopped beer of at least 5% alcohol by volume. It became the favorite quaff of coal miners and heavy industry workers in the first half of the 20th century. The mines and mills of the Ruhr district have all fallen silent now, and the Dortmunder has largely been replaced by the racy modern pills. However, the Dortmunder Union's Brewery, spelled the German way, and the uh, Dortmunder (laughs) Aktienbrewery, uh, I can't, I can't do it. Uh, you still make their own version of this classic lager style, as do many brew pubs. Uh, both DAB and DUB export their brews to North America. Uh, and then it has a nice long explanation of it. Yeah. Dude, there's an encyclopedia of beer. That's awesome. <laughs> there's, there's a website cataloging bum wines, so I'm not surprised by anything on the internet. <laughs> What's that? What the hell is a bum wine? Um, Just like a wine that a bum drink, like a three dollar bottle a, of wine. An incredibly cheap, high alcohol content <laughs> alcohol. <laughs> Technically wine, although you know Ugh. those vary. I mean stuff like you know your Mad Dog Twenty Twenty, your mm. um, I mean that's that's the classic, as it were. <laughs> but you know they, they catalog them, have have listed the the top five on various categories the. versus price. Or, you know, alcohol content. Yeah. For, you know, when you have $2 in your pocket and you need to get smashed. <laughs> you need to get really drunk, yeah. Uh, all right, well, we're, we're actually not going to talk about uh, beer for the entire episode. But we'll talk about something that drives a lot of people to drink, uh, and that is education. <laughs> yeah. How do you like them apples? I still got it. Um, yeah, so about a, gosh, maybe three, three four months ago... Um, I got turned on to a talk by uh, Sir Ken Robinson, who is a uh, British author and uh, has written prolifically on the subject of education reform. Um, Ken Robinson did a talk for the, uh, for, well, he did a TED Talk in 2006 and then did a more refined version of the same sort of idea in, um, 
2009 or so for the uh, Royal Society of Arts that got made into a fantastic, um, what's known as an RSA animate uh, talk. And um, I saw it recently, and it, it just... I remember the first time watching it, it was just so absolutely impactful to me, um, everything that they that is, is covered in it. And um, it really got me thinking over the last few months just about like my education and about um, education in general. And it, it's, it's a subject that we haven't really touched on in a while. Um, Kevin's gone through quite a bit more uh, actual experience in the education industry. Since, well, uh, relatively the, speaking. Compared to you, yes. Well, <laughs> and I think compared to the last time we talked about it, I mean, it was... Uh, when was the last time we talked about uh, education? Yeah, I'm, I'm searching now. It's, it's been a while. Anyways, while I'm looking this up, uh, what, what sort of experience have you gone through, Kevin? Uh, well... We'll go from now and then turn backwards. Yeah. Uh, most recently, I am uh, currently working as a substitute teacher in a uh, low-income high school. Not substitute. Uh, tutor. Mm-hmm. Part-time tutor um, for math for the tax test, which, um, mm. for those of you all out in Texas, the tax test is the... Um, Texas version of the <laughs> No, that's not when you, when you have to file your income no, tax returns. T-A-K-S. <laughs> It's the Texas something, so I don't know what it stands for anymore. Yeah. But it's the standardized test that all students in Texas have to pass to eventually graduate, mm-hmm. as defined by the uh, No Child Left Behind bill. Every right. state has one. They all got different names, but they're very similar in structure and composition. Um, and so I'm currently tutoring students um, twice a week on, you know, to hopefully get them to pass the test. These are the kids who have not passed it to times or more before and uh. have, you know, some of them have, this is their last chance this year, you know, they take it once in, in, at the end, in the end of the semester and they can take it twice in the summer, mm-hmm. and if they don't pass, they don't graduate. Oh, um, and they have to retake the last year of high school, basically? No, most of them just drop out at that point, they're yeah. done. <laughs> they get what's called a certificate of completion for having spent four years in the school, mm. and then go on to live their lives, um, yeah. doing whatever it is they find to do. But it's not a diploma. It's not a diploma. It's a yeah. certificate of completion. It's that you spent the last four years in high school. Because hmm. um, at that point, they don't care because they're not going to try anymore. To they're not. They're most of the kids are not going to stick around for an extra year to put in the effort to do it. Right. Um, and arguably, one could say that's because the the system as a whole has failed them. But that we'll get to that a little bit more later. I'm still yeah. covering what I do. Apparently. Right. 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 Um, so I mean, you, you've and and you've also taught in a high school. Well, yeah, I would say I've I was yeah. going further back. I've been um, a substitute teacher um, for a different district, although uh, similar demographic makeup. Oh, just want to just want to make a, a brief point. Um, that was not Simon Ponder actually at that time. <laughs> that, <laughs> I mean, no, it was not. It, um, <laughs> it's it's yeah. been true. Most of the times that we've had a flashing yeah. sound on the show, but the show. that was not Simon yeah. that time. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, I was a su- I've been a sub. Um, so I, I've seen everything from basically third grade up at that point. I think th- I think a third was the lowest I ever taught. Mm. No, that's not true. I was a sub at a um, at the child care center for that district for Ooh, half a day. Damn, um, that was a scary day. <laughs> yeah, um, I bet. Parts of it were okay, the rest of it were not. <laughs> uh, they, they gave me, I don't, I don't remember what his name was, and I couldn't use his real name anyway, so we're going to call him Stanley, the screamer. 
Um, <laughs> Stan, they, they called Stanley's. him Blank the Screamer, uh, and they gave him to me to hold on Steve? to for a while. Yeah, I, I don't even know if it was... Um, but I like Stanley yeah, Screamer. Yeah, we'll say Stanley Screamer because it sounds yeah. like Stanley Steamer. Exactly. Which, yeah. I see what you did there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm clever. But it, so it was Stanley the Screamer, and mm-hmm. they gave him to me the last hour or so I was there, and so I sat there with a screaming infant in my lap for an hour. Mm. Um, and... I, I was sort of told when they gave him to me, like, he's not going to get any better. He's not going to stop. So just, you know, go with it. <laughs> Doesn't ever lose his voice because he's a child. Yeah. You know, I, I assume eventually he falls asleep or his parents pick him up and then things get better, maybe. For, for you, at least. For me, at yeah. least, yeah. So, I mean, so, so <laughs> yeah. I've, I've done as low as infants all the way up, although the, the issues we're going to be talking about today, I don't think are going to affect the infants quite as much. Mm-hmm. The toddlers. Yeah. I don't know if I was with infants or toddlers. I know infants are younger than toddlers. Uh, yes. Infants like one, zero to one, right? Or zero to two. Well, no, I mean, because toddlers are, are under one or two. I mean, are, I thought toddlers were like two Toddlers to are, are some semi-mobile. Okay. As I understand it. They are more hard and fast. Yeah, they toddle. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's where the name comes from. Okay. Um, uh, and these, stu- these, these children, I'm not even going to call them students at this point, yeah. were capable of toddling. Some of them were. I, yeah. I was split between two different rooms. So I may have had infants and toddlers. I mean, they still had cribs. Well, I mean, but... They had to be at least, what, three to be in school, right? Or... No, no. no. Um, these, were, these were children of employees. Oh, um, okay. It was, it was yeah. basically a daycare. And, and they had from, from infant toddler all the way up to... Uh, kindergarten age, which, which uh-huh. meant they would go into school all day. Right. So uh, those certainly existed. Hmm. And so before I was a sub, I was working uh, as a as a. So from 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 the toddlers and infants going back further a step, I was working in higher education. Right. Um, working as a as an instructor at uh, Miami University, uh, getting some of the the academic level or higher academic higher ed sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, worked as a theater teacher there. I've, we've talked about that, I'm yeah, sure, at yeah. some point. Uh, before that, I student taught, um, working towards my teaching certificate. At Texas Tech. At Texas Tech University. Yeah. And that's, that was really where I, I truly entered the educational system from the other side, as it were, mm-hmm. rather than being a student. Because um, many people um, in the U.S. have experienced the public education system from the side of being a student. Not all, right? Um, I know. Were you ever in public school? Um, no, no, not not until college. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so that, yeah at that point, um, I I did five and a half years in public school and then was no longer in it. Right. Um, although it's scary how little has changed in some respects. Yeah. From from when I was in school. I was I was eleven when I dropped out, so that's now thirteen years ago, fourteen yeah, years ago. And, and that that segues nicely, kind of into into Ken's point is um, to, to briefly summarize mm-hmm. some of Ken Robinson's um, major major issues with the education system. I mean, he he kind of lays it out first that you know we every every as he puts it, every country in the world is trying to, to reform education. Um, but they're they're going at it by um, you know trying to do the same things that have always been done, but more of them, and it's it's you know relying on an educational model that he traces back to the um, what is it the economic and political circumstances of the Enlightenment. I mean, yeah, he goes back as yeah. far as the Enlightenment. Although I I think the argument's a little stronger for. Uh... The Second Industrial Revolution is as the model oh, of, our, right. of our current 
but educational certainly, system. He's, he's but yes, certainly yes, certainly the industrial revolution from back that far. Mm-hmm. And and that that model of the industrial revolution, which is we need a workforce, we need a skilled uh, populace that can work um, with machinery that you know is is you know technically uh, oriented or able to perform tasks. Um, what, 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 oh, what so I just I know that guy. I was I was oh. reading comments on this from Boing Boing when I first saw it, and I'm like, oh. wait, I know that guy. <laughs> we went to Texas Tech together. He was a he was a grad student while I was in my undergrad. He still is there, actually working on his PhD. Oh, cool. Did so I ever meet him? A, um, I don't know why you would have. Okay. We weren't particularly close, him and I. Okay. Um, we actually share a lot of similar philosophies, which is really interesting. Why did we never I've, have him on the show? Well, I didn't know this when I was working um, on the show. Okay. But, um, but he's he's got he's an interesting guy, Kyle Conway. If for some reason you're listening to this. Um, hi. I don't think you follow me or listen to Bad Philosophy, although I keep up with your blog and stuff. Um, yeah, and he likes the video. Just yeah, no, for the I mean, just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, I follow him. I follow his blog, and he's also a playwright. He's working on Kyle approves. Maybe that can be a, another one of our things. <laughs> Kyle approves. Well, the last one kind of backfired on us. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, more on that later. <laughs> Anyways, so so he, he traces it back to this to this idea that, you know, we... As, as society, particularly Western society, had a, a problem. You had a bunch of um, uneducated people, and you had a lot of industries that needed folks with at least a base level of standard education to get into uh, factories to do repetitive uh, but skilled labor. And the answer to it was, well, let's just start teaching kids. And, and that was apparently a novel concept, you know, the idea of educating children. Um, there was sort of this idea, I guess, back in the Enlightenment era that children were, you know, um, were un- underdeveloped or, you know, incapable of, of learning or that there was, there, there, that, nobody, they, that children of a certain um, class or a certain uh, segment of society could never actually uh, achieve anything. That only, you know, uh, children brought up in a certain environment would be able to, to succeed or children of a certain bloodline or whatever. So uh, it was... Uh, I forget if he mentions individual people who, who started this, but he traces he them. He drops a couple names, but it's more, it's a, more a cultural um, shift. I mean, right. if, if anyone, I'd like to have Sean Brackett on here, because if, if you want to talk about the history of education... He probably knows a little bit more. Well, that's what he studies. Oh, damn it. <laughs> we'll call him how up, did, see if he's on Skype. Yeah, <laughs> you right. know that? Let's uh, pause I'll for just, a moment. I'll just throw a tweet at him. Let me see if, if we can get Sean Brackett on the show. I just, just now occurred to me. This um, would be kind of funny. So yeah, he drops a couple of names about you know who, yeah. who might have who sort of developed this structure. And it was the idea that that okay, let's let's create a structured, standardized educational system. You know, we're going to build uh, we're going to, to train people to uh, with, with you know a variety of skills in mathematics, in literature. We're going to train them to read and write and do arithmetic, right? The three R's. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so this, this, this paradigm developed in completely different economic circumstances from those that we find ourselves in today. And his, his argument essentially boils down to the fact that we, you know, we, treat, we treat education like we treat um, all manufacturing. You know, we, mm-hmm. we group students based on their date of manufacture. You know, yeah, that's, these... that's, that's one of the great <laughs> quotes he's got in there. Yeah. You know, we say that the most important thing about any group of students is they're, you know, born on date. The, right. The they're born... stamped, you know, this, is, this group is together because they were born near each other. Exactly. Um, um, cut off at a, at a you know, yearly, yearly cycle type mm-hmm. of a thing. 
And uh, and so you know, and really, and, and one thing that's funny is that literally, if you're on one day side of the out of the other, yeah, it does change where you are. Exactly. Uh, There's a girl in my grade back when I was actually in school, who was one day short of that and was basically a year older than everybody else in the class, <laughs> and was and was smarter and more developed and 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 all that sort of stuff because of this arbitrary dateline. Yeah, and then literally same class, we had um, another girl who was in it. Who, was on, who had the opposite thing, was basically almost a year younger than everybody else because mm-hmm. she was early, you know, she was on, on this side of that date. Right. Um, and she wasn't, like, less developed or anything because of it, but, but she was, she was like, basically, you had almost a two-year gap between those two people. Yeah. Because of this arbitrary stamp that we've determined this is what, and, and particularly when you're dealing with adolescence, that's a massive gap. Right. That you're looking at, not only in terms of, of ability, but in terms of just emotional... And mental development, right? And it and it completely <laughs> ignores the the fact that that humans do develop along at di- at different rates in different ways that have yeah. different sets of skills, etc. You know, there's there are so many subtle differences between the the ways in which each person uh, takes in a certain type of knowledge or or you know um, develops along a certain track, and and it's all it's all based. And I, I think this goes along with what I've mentioned before with uh, with Steven Pinker. Um, Again, with this uh, this idea of, of sort of we're not all blank slates. Mm-hmm. It's not all based on on nurture, uh, which direction we go. We all tend toward different skills and different abilities, and tend to be stronger in in some areas than others, just based on on brain formation. Now, I don't know, I'm, I don't I'm hesitant to argue, agree with anything Stephen Pinker says, <laughs> just from what you've said of him. Evidentially, but, evidentially, but. With with that in mind, you know, we do yeah, see these. Ken these Robinson trends. agrees. Ken Robinson argues this point mm-hmm. as, as well, um, which is that you know we're much better served essentially by treating education less as you know students' minds as a a bucket waiting to be filled, and more as a seed waiting for the right environment yeah. in which well, to grow. And, and if you really want to get into the people who've talked about this particular, you go look at. Um, uh, I'm, of course, I'm a blank on his name. Yeah. Moment I try and say it. Um, Paolo Freire mm-hmm. is um, the creator or the identifier of what he called the pedagogy, which which is what we're talking about here is pedagogy, how to teach, mm-hmm. how we teach. Right. Pedagogy of the oppressed, and he sort of identified what what is called the banking system of education. Mm-hmm. And this is what you will see across the board in public education today. Yeah. And that is a system where the student is a bank and they come to class and the teacher deposits knowledge in that bank for the students to later draw upon and use in their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ken Robinson uses a very similar analogy. Yes. Um, and Of the, the different types. Oh, hey, Sean's calling back. Cool. <laughs> Hello, Sean. Hey, Stephen. How's it going? Hey, it's going all right. Um, I know this is really out of the blue, but would you by any chance be able to hop on Skype and join Kevin and I for a discussion on education reform? I would love to. Um, <laughs> can you give me, like, ten minutes? Uh, yeah, Certainly. sure. We'll, just, we'll take a break and, and resume <laughs> once we've got you back here. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, success. We live in the future. We do. <laughs> yeah, well, and, I, I don't know if you saw, but I, I sent him a tweet too. Yeah. So like, you called him. and I said, "Hey, Stephen just called you to be live." Oh, okay. Yeah. That, that's probably too bad what you got didn't it. answer. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. I figured you know I'll just let him know, in case you know, whatever. Yeah. Hey, Sean's here. Hi, Sean. Hello. 
<laughs> How's it so going? It's uh, it's going great, man. Um, so I guess not the first time that we've brought an impromptu guest on the show, but probably the first time we've done it quite this way. Yeah, and and this successfully. Our last yeah. time, like the last time we tried it, we were literally calling to people in the hallway, trying to find anybody who would be on the show with us because we were afraid. Oh, of doing you're talking it by about ourselves. that that episode with Michael? Yes. We were just like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was that was a disaster. It was. But, um, this is better. This is better. So, uh, Sean, I mean, the the reason we we thought about uh, getting you on here is, of course, because you kind of study this thing, um, not necessarily for a living, but because it's it's your thing. It's your your muse, or I don't know what what passion? whatever. It's your passion. Oh, it's totally my muse and my passion. <laughs> it can be both. Um, so yeah, well, you're you're familiar with the with the talk we're discussing, and uh, I was I was curious to get kind of your take on what where where is it that we got like the current educational paradigm? Oh, you know, I think it it. Oh gosh, I sounded Canadian there. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just oh, realized. Oh well. <laughs> you know, it's okay. Uh, we don't discriminate. Yeah, it's all yeah, right. We, uh, we hate Canadians. I'm half Canadian. Oh. <laughs> oh, don't hate them. Love them. Okay. Love them. Anyway, right. well, actually, it, I'm finding it much easier to love Canadians after watching Slings and Arrows. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> just total rabbit trail. But well, uh, to bring us back, Canada, oh. the education system <laughs> yeah. is okay. actually a nice halfway step between the American system and the British system. Mm. Um, Wait, what's the British system? The I British gotta... system is oh, it's a mishmash. Of many things, but it's primarily where we got our collegiate ideal. Okay. So the concept of a quadrangle, where you have a building that is physically separating the halls of learning from the outside world, hmm. um, a physical manifestation of the uh, removed uh, pastoral ideal. The literal ivory tower. Yes, the literal <laughs> <Yeah>. ivory tower, <laughs> and our system is a combination of the British collegiate model with the German research university, mm-hmm. and we have sort of combined them into this, what I think has been, up till now, a very successful model, but it's very much based in the economy of the elite. Well, you're talking about, you're talking about college education. What about, yes. what about just like... I mean, and does it does it then kind of down convert into the you know high school system, the middle school system? Oh, it it the American education system is, has so many roots that it's really <laughs> hard to trace them. Okay, but our current uh, primary and secondary education systems really come from the common school movement of the early nineteenth uh, century with okay. Horace Mann and his uh, public you know his public his publicization, ugh, sorry, of the mantra "Go West, young man." Um, he was he was one of those folks. Um, was he talking to himself? Uh, well, hopefully not. <laughs> I mean, he was a newspaper editor in New York, um, so you know. Hmm. Anyway, it's possible, but but is that is that what Ken Robinson re- references when he's talking about like the the economic and political circumstances of the Enlightenment? I guess Horace Mann would be like late Enlightenment, right? Yes, that's my understanding. I'm okay. not an expert in any way on the Enlightenment, but knowing the time period, very much so. Okay. Like late, like 1820s. Yeah, yeah, that would be late Enlightenment. Um, and so, so we we were kind of uh, last on this this idea of it of it being very, you know, structured, very, um, you know, almost factory like. Um, 
uh, it's an industry mm -hmm. in a sense. You know, you have departments, you have a, a bureaucracy, you have you know participants, workers. I think I really feel like the students are pretty much the workers in the equation. Are they, are they the workers and or are they the product? They, well, a little bit of both, I guess. Yeah, the, I guess I more the more the product. Though. I mean, with our our goal is, as my understanding, particularly of, of like high schools and things like that, is our goal is to produce workers, produce workers, and yeah. produce even even better than that, citizens. Whatever that vague term means. Yeah. Whatever yeah. we determine that to be. And, and, and standardize as much as possible. And one of the, and so what Ken Robinson laments in his talk is the over standardization, the, the kind of the reining in of, of the, of the creative, of the, of the differences and of the, of the unique, um, you know, divergent qualities and, and divergent methods of thinking, um, what he actually calls divergent thinking, mm -hmm. um, of, of humanity, um, completely ignoring the, the different ways that people learn, the different rates at which they learn, the different circumstances that contribute to them um, being able to uh, formulate and contribute value to society. Um, a standardized educational system seems to force everyone into a certain mold that no one really fits into well, but that everyone can fit into sort of. And spits them out um, with, with, you know, some kind of lowest common denominator of, of skills. Um, and it is from there that they're expected to then succeed in society. Uh, so he argues against that. But, um, Sean, I just wanted to, I mean, is that a fair assessment of, of I guess, Ken's point or of maybe what you've seen? <laughs> you know, it's been a little while since I've seen it. But based on the emotional reaction that I had, and I remember that quite distinctly, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a good assessment of what he was saying. But I think part of the exploration of this topic and his treatment of it um, is missing a substantial part that where we are today and our levels of literacy and creativity stem in part from the system that he laments. Because hmm. a part of the common school movement, and I need to correct myself, I mixed up Horace Mann with Horace Greeley. Horace Mann <laughs> Easy was mistake to make, I understand. Well, Horace Mann was the educator in Massachusetts, and he was the uh, founder of the first public school system. Mm. And Horace Greeley was the publisher of the New York Tribune, and he publicized Go West, Young Man. They okay. sort of worked hand in hand. I they were both would named be Horace. If I did not, yeah. They were both named Horace, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that common school movement was not just a... a tool of the industrialization it was also a way to advance the republic and you see that in the rhetoric of the time that mm -hmm. uh, by educating young people and by taking them and molding them into something great and most often Christian you would be advancing the nation um, you would be assisting Columbia uh, uh, Columbia being the representation of America hmm. um, from whence we get District of Columbia okay also, so. she was the gem of the ocean. Oh, she was. I didn't know that. That's, that's, there's actually a song called Columbia, the Gem of the Ocean. I, I don't know anything particularly <laughs> about the song other than it exists and that I have sung it at Boy Scout camps. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, another bit of trivia I learned today. Um, Hail Columbia is apparently the theme for the Vice President of the United States. Yeah, so we're just steeped in Columbia and we didn't even know it. <laughs> Something like that. Um, <laughs> is, is it Columbus Day anytime soon? 
Ooh. <laughs> I don't know because I don't celebrate Columbus Day. <laughs> it always it's October. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, it's always one of those things that just like, oh, it's Columbus Day. And I'm just like, all right. Oops. And to bring it back to Canada, it's usually around the time that Canada celebrates Thanksgiving. Which is much more important than Columbus Day. Is that different from Boxing Day? No, Boxing that's a British Day is the day holiday. after Christmas. Okay. Sorry. I celebrate Boxing Day. Mm. Yeah. It's easy. You don't do anything the day after Christmas. Well, incidentally, it's it's President's Day on Monday, which, you know, is also a contrived holiday. I think we, we may have touched on this subject <laughs> before sometime in the past, this idea of, you know, just conflating holidays, just combining them together into, you know, watered down, arbitrary, whatever. Back to education. Um, so I, I remember, like you said, Sean, having a very passionate reaction to this talk. And for, for probably the, a good like couple of weeks or three weeks afterwards, I was like, well, you've, you've wanted to do a podcast about it for a long time now, right? Like, but I'm you keep more, trying to bring it up. So, so it's probably good that I didn't immediately because I would have been just like so. Like, this is exactly what we need to do. We need to just smash <laughs> everything and Anarchy. start over. Yeah, yeah. Um, I put a, I probably would have just advocated that we turn every school into a Montessori style uh, thing. But um, which, by the way, have you done much research on the Montessori model? Uh, myself, yeah. Uh, no, I'm basically familiar with it, but not enough to discuss. <laughs> Let's uh, let me do some research while while y'all talk amongst yourselves here. So, Ke- Kevin, you know mm-hmm. what, what was what was your assessment of it or, or opinion of it then, um, as, from somebody who's been in the education? Yeah, system? I mean, for someone who's who's literally steeped in the the factory style that he sorts of talks about right yeah. now, um, I'm. In a lot of ways, I'm fed up with it. Um, as as I sense. Uh, Sir Ken is as well. Sir Robinson? Uh, Sir Ken Robinson. Well, I know that's his name, but should I call him Sir Sir Ken, Sir Robinson, Sir Ken Robinson? Um, Sir... I think Sir Robinson because I think Patrick Stewart, I would never call him Sir Patrick. I would probably (laughs) say Captain Picard, but... Right, <laughs> I might call him Sir Patrick. That Which, on that note, did you see? Did you see the uh, the thing with him and and the uh, him and Liam Neeson and like comparing their action figures on some British talk show? No, I'll have to look it up. Hilarious. Yes. Yeah. It was, um, on, it was on Reddit. But um, anyways, <laughs> so um, so being steeped in in the factory system and working as a tutor for that very system, um, which is designed to sort of create. I mean, the goal of it is is theoretically to create a minimum level of, of ability in all of our students. Mm-hmm. And that is the goal. And I understand that goal. Um, but I also see the system failing on so many levels to actually achieve that goal. Mm. Uh, so I, I have the reaction that we kind of touched on earlier of, you know, I want to try every possible thing we can um, <laughs> instead of this system. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what's going to work. I'm not. I'm not steeped in the research. I don't. I don't know what people have been trying, but I'm at the point where I'm willing to try any new system that someone wants to throw out there for at least a little while, um, because that's how negatively I feel about the current public school system. Okay. Uh, so you know, I'm. I'm saying you know, let's tear down all the walls in the school. That that could be a step. Literally, literally get rid of the walls. Have all of the classrooms be open and see what happens there. These, mm. That school, that kind of school exists. That's not a made-up thing. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say I've heard of that. Yeah, no, I'm, I, my ideas aren't original. I take them from other places. That, that that's <laughs> called an open school. It okay. exists. I think it's what it's called. It's an open school. Let's let 
all of the students create the rules. That's a school that exists. Mm -hmm. It's on This American Life. Um, if you get a chance huh. to go listen to it, it's really good. Okay. Um, I don't remember the name of the episode. Well, I'm not a communist, so can I listen to NPR? Um, actually, you can. I've, oh, I've been wonderful. secretly listening to NPR for many years now. Okay. Um, okay. And not a, I, no, you didn't know I listened to NPR? Uh, I, I mean, I kind of figured, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I listened to, I listened to This American okay, Life. I listened to uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Oh, yeah. Um, I, need, I, I need to listen to those much I more. I listen to Planet Money, I think, is a fantastic podcast. Oh, I, well, I, I listen to the NPR newscast every morning when I wake up. That's See? like literally as I'm making breakfast. You're listening to NPR. The first thing I'm listening to is NPR. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, that's um, much more educated. I just check Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, oh, I don't no. listen to that consistently. I, I hear it accidentally a lot of times because Amy will listen to it when she's getting up in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, no, it's a wonderful thing, things. Sean. You just, you just turn it on and just kind of absorb what's happening in the world. It is. It's, you know? it's actually real nice yeah um, they they actually have an hourly podcast they do mm -hmm. yeah that's what um, I the to. hour you know it's, it's like a seven minute FI, summary. yeah summary this is what's happening right now what's going on um so so listen to, go find that episode of this american life where they have a school that where all of the students create the rules mm -hmm. and all of those rules are able to be changed at any point at the discretion of the students mm -hmm. um we talked about uh paulo freire earlier and he talks, his, one of his big goals was the student-led education rather than the teacher-led education. And I think, you know, to achieve that, we do have to give the students power. And so I want to try that. I want to get this group of, you know, I have some people that I tutor who could be considered by many standards to be absolutely terrible students. Mm -hmm. But I also interact with them. I know that these are pretty smart kids. A lot of them are. And, they, and they're, they're competent. And I want to see, let's see what, let's let them try out and and put them in charge of their own education and see what can happen. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm willing to try all of these things. I'm willing to accept that none of them may work. But we're, we're so stuck in this system that did, in fact, start in the early 19th century in certain ways. I mean, it's obviously changed somewhat over the past 200 years. Yeah. Yeah, because we're in the early 21st century now. Well, wow. if anything, it's just gotten more cleanly standardized. You know, cause I, I think... You know, when there was when there was uh, more of a separation in the you know the regions of America and, and among the schools, you would get local variations in style. You would get a lot more integration of, of local cultural aspects and things like that. I mean, you would you would have I don't know, Sean. Can you talk as as much on this? I'm just speculating, but was was there a move toward more standardization over time, or vice versa? Oh, very much so. Mm -hmm. I think the current. Um, trend of state legislatures involving themselves so much into education that they are selecting textbooks yeah. is a very good example of how far we have come. How long and, has that been around, by the way? Oh, oh, goodness. Uh, I would, this is a guess, but an educated one. Well, probably. Educated. <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, but 20 years, probably. Okay. Like that so little late wow. 80s. Yeah. Within um, our lifetimes. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's, and unfortunately, well, I'm editorializing. Go for it. Uh, no, please, please. This, this is an editorial Come show. On. <laughs> I will say, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm trying to be objective as if <laughs> Yes, well, that, you be objective in your thesis or, you yeah. know, not on this podcast. And say whatever the fuck Actually, you don't want don't be objective here. in your thesis. Yeah. Be, don't be a <laughs> No, I'm not objective. I definitely am. Uh, I'm very passionate about it, as Good. you've previously mentioned. Um, but unfortunately, uh, textbook selection um, is so based on national companies... Yes. That and these companies try to select the largest con or earn the largest contracts that they can. Yeah. So Texas. larger states like Texas, California, and New York and Florida have 
a very large sway in things in Texas as a whole because the state, to my knowledge, selects its textbooks for all districts within the state yes. at mm-hmm. once. As um, I don't think it happens that way in New York, Florida, or California. So therefore, the largest single contract is in Texas. So mm-hmm. whatever the school board in Texas or TIA or th- whatever that means, yeah, the, the, the Texas Education Agency, mm-hmm. whatever they select, therefore becomes a national textbook. A national textbook because it's more efficient for these companies to just produce that textbook. Yeah, another, saying, this is what hey, we're making. This is what you get to buy. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And the schools and are like, ridiculous. well, it's too expensive for us to buy another one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So, oh God, yeah, it, and I remember seeing like excerpts from some of the the you know the the he- hearings. I don't know meetings where they were discussing the the you know relevant topics to include in these textbooks or you know which ones should be um, picked for which reasons, and just being appalled, you know, <laughs> just being absolutely cringing and almost like on the verge of punching through a wall at just the the quite literally uneducated opinions of the people choosing how to educate um, yeah. everyone. You know, we certainly don't want to let the teachers choose what to use to teach their students. Right, right. We want to let these, you know, religiously biased, you know, heavily, heavily conservative, um, you know, people. Politicians. Politicians, yes, choose. Regardless, before, I, before my blood starts to boil, um, you were talking a little bit, Kevin, about, well, let's, let's try something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I read recently a book uh, called In the Plex by, um, let me see if I can get the author here. Um, somebody who used to work at Google. No, not somebody who worked at Google, but someone who has uh, spent a lot of time um, Stephen Sneaking Levy around the Google hallways. <laughs> Stephen Levy. Um, he's been he's reported on Google from the very early days, so he's been he's been close to the company and has gotten um, really unprecedented access to a lot of the people and, and the processes. And um, recently wrote this book that sort of analyzes Google from the inside. It's called How Google Thinks, Works, and Shapes Our Lives. And um, one of the things that he talks about in that book is just the very um, the the very counter-establishment nature of um, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Um, and they were actually brought, a good reason for this is they were brought up within a Montessori-style educational environment. Um, just kind of skimming the Wikipedia article here, it was apparently developed by an Italian physician uh, named Maria Montessori. Aha! That's the, how they named it! Huh? Sorry, I'm being facetious. The, oh. It was named after the person who made it. Imagine oh, that. Oh, okay, yeah. Um... <laughs> And it, and it basically focuses around, it says it's, it's characterized by an emphasis on independence, freedom within limits, and respect for a child's natural psychological development. And it centers around um, these ideas of, um, they have kind of a list here, self-preservation, orientation to the environment, order, exploration, communication, Purposeful activity, manipulation of the environment, exactness, repetition, abstraction, self-perfection, and the mathematical mind. Um, basically, it, it's a way of giving chi- children freedom um, to to discover and explore their own development and and to kind of create freely um, during this this very important stage. And so it is essentially the exact opposite of standardization. Um, one of the things in the Montessori model is, is they actually mix uh, classroom ages anywhere from like two to six in, you know, two and a half or three to six years. Um, 
you get uh, student choice of activity from within a prescribed range of options, uninterrupted blocks of work time, um, a constructivism or discovery model where students learn concepts from working with materials rather than by direct instruction, and um, kind of specialized materials geared toward um, these certain, they identify like four phases of education. So you, you have, you recognize like different development stages and tailor the education appropriately. So it, you don't teach children the same way or the same things in the same way across the board throughout their style. I mean, quite honestly, the educational style changes very little from like third, fourth grade all the way up through college. <laughs> you know, the, the idea of lecture, quiz, test, repeat mm -hmm. is the same all the way up through it. Yep. And so, you know, w without, without variety, without variation, it gets really freaking boring well, after you've I mean, been in it system. for and, and at that point, your the, whole life, the yeah. students have no... Here's a fun word I like to use: agency. They have no, yes. they have no say in their own education at this point. Right, right. It's, it's. This is what you're going to learn because it is what you need to learn because I say so. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the the illusion of the elective is just that. You know, okay, you get to pick <laughs> this art over that art. You get to pick this over that, mm -hmm. and the the distinctions are. are Significantly minimal, right? Because it's all—it's all going to be taught to you the same way. Mm -hmm. and it's all just you know, pick your pick your variety of bland your flavor. flavor yeah. you know, but you're pretty much eating the same food um, in every place. And um, I don't know. So, so Sean, you haven't encountered? Have you encountered this model or similar models in your in your education on education? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I was actually. Thinking when you were talking about Montessori, it reminded me of something I found from Sweden called Sloyd. S -L -O. Best name ever. Yeah. Sloyd. Like Stephen Lloyd pushed into one thing. Yeah. Um, so it's S L O Y D. Mm -hmm. And it started in Sweden as a way of educating with uh, manual things, so handicraft. And it followed a very interesting uh, form of pedagogy where it went from simple to more complex, from known to unknown. Yes. And that reminds me of Montessori, sort of, mm -hmm. um, because it is not a lecture, recite, quiz, mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> repeat for 12 long years. Right. And well, then plus was, four in college. Oh, that's true. <laughs> oh, yeah. For us, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's been a few more. But that Sloyd was brought over to the States as a part of the normal schools. And normal mm -hmm. schools were founded as teacher education institutions yes. in the late 19th century. And, you know, seeing how that evolved into a way of, it, once it brought a unique aspect of, or a unique way of teaching, but also was a chief instrument for standardizing how teachers taught. Oh. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> So but also, I'm sorry. Well, I, I'm not sure exactly how that would work then. So did they just like discover a good way of doing it and then stopped discovering? <laughs> no, I mean you still see that. I mean, having been on the teacher education side of things, mm -hmm. um, they do. I mean, there's there's research that goes on. There are, there are journals that this stuff gets published, and people are trying new things mm -hmm. to to theoretically get the best way of teaching. Right. Um, you know, we're talking about modernism again. I know I ha hark on that a lot. But yeah. um, 
It's that sort of idea. Well, and, I think the, the Montessori idea is is inherently postmodern. Yeah, well, I, I would say the Montessori is so more so. But you, but yeah. a lot of the educational stuff, at least a lot of the research I saw when I was going through a teacher education program, mm-hmm. um, very was modernistic, very modernistic, yeah. very much in developing and giving teachers the set of tools they need to walk into a classroom and be the best teachers that there are. Yeah, um, and. And there are certainly benefits to that. Um, Harry Wong, I think, has come very close to mastering it. He's a, he's a an educator and a writer mm-hmm. um, who who created a system. He's got a book out called The First Days of School that literally has has in a lot of schools become mandatory reading for the new teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to read it in my program. See, um, I mean, there there are schools out there that when they hire you, they will buy you a copy of The First Days of School to give to you, and it's literally. It starts off with almost, I, I haven't read the whole thing, but, you know, minute-by-minute minute breakdowns of what you should do on the first day of class. You know, what you do when your students are walking in the door. And, and, and wow. To, with the goal of being to eventually facilitate teaching. And the thing is, his stuff makes a lot of sense. And a lot of it really works when it's implemented. Hmm. You've done it. Yeah, I've yeah. used some of his techniques um, hmm. because they're important. And they, <laughs> they matter. Um, the guy's not making this stuff up. It's mm-hmm. based on a lot of experience and stuff that does, in fact, work in the classrooms. Mm-hmm. But it works within this very structured system of the school itself and the bureaucracy in which that takes place. So right. the eventual goal of, of getting them to achieve, be it a test score, be it an educational goal. Yeah, it, it's a way of working toward the same. It, it, it's Like you say, it's a, it's a better way of manufacturing citizens mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah it's a, it's essentially factory automation or factory I mean, optimization yeah, I mean, it, harry know. wong is the uh industrial engineer of the education system yeah yeah there you go let's keep but the i think there's i think there is hope for reform in our current system really i'm yes. glad you think that <laughs> and i will and i say that because i think there are ways that we can improve it which are doable, but we have to have the political will to do it. Yeah. Well, you um, know, watching the Secretary of Education on The Daily Show the other night, I, I, was, I was more unhopeful about that, that very prospect than I've ever been before because of how hopeful he was about the kinds of things that they're doing. And, and John Stewart was trying to kind of probe him and, and, you know, kind of help him realize that, no, actually, you're just, you know, what, what it sounds like you're doing is more standardization and and somehow that's going to to correct things and and you know the 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 secretary kept denying no 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 we're we're respecting (laughs) teachers and you know we're raising wages we're spending four billion dollars on the bottom five percent of schools you know which god you know the strengths quest people would just cringe at i'm sure um, <laughs> well, good thing they're not here, right? Yeah, good thing they're not here. And, yes. uh, <laughs> Nobody here is familiar with Strengths Quest or its benefits. <laughs> um, and, and just kept trying to, you know, to defend these 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 things. And 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 John Stewart was just trying to to, to get him to to you know talk at least or entertain the idea that there was you know a dramatically different way of doing, or or maybe that that this way that had just been sort of accepted that is sort of accepted like standardized testing is just the way you do things um that there was another way that there was that you could possibly jog out of it and um i i don't know what it's going to take uh when when the people at the top are so you know if their hands are tied by the publishers and their hands are tied by each other and and by precedent and by all these other things how 
is it really going to change? <laughs> well, if it's going to change, it's through stuff like what we're doing right now. I yeah. mean, it's, it's through what Sean's doing and, and his work and putting out new ideas in there. Well, I, I, in my opinion, and maybe you'll agree with me, Sean, I think it's like any free market, right, if, if we have that idea that truly exists, um, you know, you boycott it. And I, and I think that's exactly what, when, <laughs> what I did, yeah. what my parents I, did, I, really, I did and then what thing. I did by, yeah. by proxy is um, boycott the education system and just, you know, don't participate in it. Uh, don't go to public school and make your own way. And, it, you know, I know for, for so many families that's just not an option you know, you just, you can't, it isn't. you can't and, and give your child an I mean, alternative. Yeah. And so, you know, then I think maybe we have a responsibility to, to work and try and fix these things for those people who don't have that opportunity. Well, and I think, I think that's where the internet can really play a big part. And I think that's where it's been very underutilized. I think, you know, efforts like Wikipedia are a good start, mm-hmm. but we need like a, a Wikipedia for, you know, a general education you know, Wikipedia is, is very unstructured, and, and the way that it links together makes sense. It's good for it's good for it's great facts. for ex- well, and, and and it's great for like exploration mm-hmm. to an extent, but it's it's not terribly interactive. It's still a bunch of text. You're still reading a bunch. It's, it's but oh, here's the thing: it's relatively wide but shallow. Yes, that's true. I've been very disappointed many times of like I've found a, a fascinating topic, you know, very deep into you know mm-hmm. a, a research session. I, the other night, I, for some reason, oh, I know why. I saw on IO9 they had an article about um, they made some sort of an advance in um, resurrecting or, or recovering DNA from uh, a Neanderthal, and so oh, they're great. So we're gonna have zombie Neanderthals. <laughs> <laughs> Not resurrecting a Neanderthal, but recovering cloning. Yeah, they're, they're, that's what our goal is. The article was about potentially cloning a Neanderthal, and like whether that Neanderthal would have rights, which I think is a fascinating topic. I mean, that that gets into that that really pushes the boundaries of like you know what are human rights, right? <laughs> well, do they apply to uh, proto humans yeah, and things like that? Um, uh, we all got a little bit of Neanderthal in us, probably. We do, but the, you know the, how much mixed a lot. How much of a species being part of us <laughs> constitutes giving the a pure example of that species the same rights that we enjoy? My answer is any of it. Any of it. So, well, in that case, you know, we all, almost all mammals, almost all animals now stem from a common ancestor mm-hmm. and like a reptilian yeah. variety from the Cambrian period, right? So, should we, you know, should we apply the same rights to? Animals and things like that. I mean, that's. I'm, I'm tempted to say yes, to be honest with you. But great topic. We'll, we'll put that. We'll put that off. Actually, that's something that we haven't yet covered on the show. I don't think is, is animal I don't rights. Think so. Um, but because of this, I, I went down the the route of just you know looking at the development of the origins of life and like all the theories related to it, and um, you know, and I found some articles about just some really obscure varieties of life on Wikipedia, and they were very short. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I and I did I wanted that depth, but I didn't, you know I wanted a curated way of discovering about it, you know, and and there's just there wasn't any <laughs> yeah. that I could find, not even links, not even content links on Wikipedia. So, I, and I wonder, right, if we've if we've kind of passed the golden age of of the development of Wikipedia, it's it seems to, I I don't I don't know if it's as easy to grow it in the same ways or if there are people devoted to it in the same to the same well, the extent thing is, anymore. The the people and, and we're we're tangenting, we're rabbit holing here. Definitely. But um but what Wikipedia how, is now manned by and controlled 
by a much smaller group of editors rather than the initial large group of contributors. Right, right. Um, we were talking before the show, you know, I created the web page for John Dortmunder, the Wikipedia page for John Dortmunder. <laughs> I didn't even sign into my account to do it. I just, I just straight up made it because yeah. there wasn't one. And I said, I need to make this page. And so right. I did. And it stayed. And, and it's still there. It got I mean, improved, yeah. I mean, and it's nowhere near what it... I mean, it's grown some. It hasn't grown a whole lot since then, but it's grown some. Hmm. Um, it's, Is there any text from you from, from original? I wouldn't know. <laughs> You'd have to check. Um, I it's entirely love, possible. Well, and the revision history should go all the way back, right? Yes. Um, it should. 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 <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I created the Dortmunder page, and so there's, there's entirely possibly something that I originally put in there. In there. But nowadays, it's much more difficult... A, there's fewer pages you need to create. Mm-hmm. And if you try to create one, you have to prove its worth in a very different way than I did. I mean, somebody probably saw John Dortmund and said, well, yeah, he's a character in that book. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I created this, they still had spoiler tags on Wikipedia. Hmm. Like, that's how long ago it was. Oh, wow. Um, which, I don't know if you're familiar with your history of Wikipedia, but the spoiler wars was something that happened that nobody talks about anymore. <laughs> but for a long time on Wikipedia... Like the Armenian Genocide? Not like that. Because <laughs> well, yeah. nobody actually died, and that's a just terrible thing that happened that, you know, was actually <laughs> terrible. This is something that was internet terrible. Yeah. So it's different. <laughs> and insignificant. Mm-hmm. But at, at, for a long time... Um, things could get tagged as spoilers in Wikipedia, and there'd be a little—it uh, was like a little collapsible button mm-hmm. that you say "spoilers beyond this." Click this to open them up, so you didn't accidentally spoil things for you. Right. Um, and it was a long argument people had of should we have this? Is this encyclopedic to have these spoilers on here, or should we not care about spoilers and just say the facts such as they are? And so it went back and forth a long time, and then a group of editors literally went through and got rid of all the spoiler tags. Just got rid of them and said, wow. ha, what are you going to do now? <laughs> and that was the end of the spoiler tag. I mean, it's people still try and bring it up, and occasionally people bring it up. Like, um, for example, the, um, oh, what's the great, there's a famous play, The Mousetrap, mm-hmm. um, where every time you see the play, at the end of the play, it's, it's a murder mystery. Uh-huh. I've never seen it. Um, but at the end of the play, the cast swears the audience to secrecy in regards to who the murderer is. Uh-huh. And this has been going on for a significantly long period of time. The play is maybe 100 years old at this point. <laughs> um, and it's something that actually is taken very seriously, not just in the theory community, but as, as a whole. It's sort of this, the fact that I, I have a, a master's degree in theater and have never seen the play, and, and in, I've intentionally avoided knowing who it is so that oh, I can go okay, into it on okay. Unspoiled, but that I've successfully done that yeah. is something. But if I go to the Mousetrap page, it's it says it's right there at the end, the end oh. of the plot summary, mm. and and no, no and no qualms alert. about it, no yeah. spoiler alert because it's, it's an encyclopedia. Well, of course, yeah. an encyclopedia is going to tell you everything about it. So I'm I'm sorry, I, I found the earliest revision I could. It was from 2006. That may have been mine. August 2006. Well, okay. See, that's see, that's not me. I so, Barry. Well, yeah. what happened was, and this here's here tells you, tells you what I know. That's not the original creation of it, oh. because hmm. the original page I made a mistake. I didn't capitalize the D in Dortmunder. Oh. And so the page had to be transferred over here, and it didn't keep the new history. Oh. Didn't keep the history from the original page. Mm. 
Because there was no way to change the capitalization of a page. Right, right. And they're different pages. They are actually different pages. And, and so they transferred everything from my page, which was John Dortmunder with a lowercase d, mm-hmm. to John Dortmunder with a capital T. Is any of the d. text here, the original text that you I, wrote? I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just been too long. No, I mean, okay, they moved to this page in 2006. Yeah. That's now six years ago, thereabouts. Five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what I wrote yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, that, that's, that, you know, and, and I, I hope that there are folks working on, on such, a, such a revolution in education that, that can happen. And, and I, I really, truly believe that the Internet is the way to do it. And, and I honestly would love to see someone experiment with just, like, giving a kid access to Wikipedia. <laughs> and seeing what they can and do. And seeing what happens. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the you argument, know, and, and, yeah, and, and again, I'm, I'm all for experimentation and trying new things. The argument being, are they going to independently discover reasoning skills, or are they just going to collect facts? Because Wikipedia doesn't teach reasoning. Yeah. There are certainly places out there where you can learn Unless reasoning. Unless you read the Wikipedia article on reasoning. But see, even that's not going dis- to teach you. It's going to describe it to you. And that's different. So, I can okay. describe how an internal combustion engine works. Yeah. I can't put one together. Well, so maybe it's that combined with other things. You know, maybe it's, it's Montessori plus Wikipedia I plus, you know. I mean, uh, I don't YouTube or I don't, I don't do the vlog Wikisori. thing. But there was, there was a, um, a <laughs> Montepedia. vlogger. Dan Brown was the name of a vlogger who mm-hmm. um, made a big deal when he dropped out of college mm-hmm. because he felt that the education system was broken. He, he felt the internet was a better place to learn yeah. than his university or his college. I don't know where. We should get know where him on the at. show. Anybody have his number? <laughs> he's, he's kind of a big deal, actually. I know. Um, he apparently. He's part of the... Or he didn't he do uh, like Dan 3.0 the you know Revision 3 show where he's just like live blogs everything. How do I know? I, I've seen two videos of his, one of which is the one I've mentioned. So no, I think uh, <laughs> I think I've watched some of his stuff a little bit. I, I don't find him. I just I got him confused. I didn't I didn't really enjoy his videos, but um, I was got him confused with the author Dan Brown. With the author Dan Brown. And yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. like Dan Brown, the author is doing a video blog. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I'm writing my next novel, so you can see how horrible it is in development. I don't know why he sounds like an American oh, Sean Connery. Oh, speaking of, if you haven't already, jump on the Kickstarter for Double Fine. Hmm? What um, is this? For what? Well, Double Fine is the guys who made Psychonauts, who made Day of the Tentacle, who Ooh. made um, Brutal Legend. And they're, they're, they've got a Kickstarter for an old-school point-and-click adventure game. And it's called. Uh, the, the company's called Double Fine. If you Google Double Fine, one word, a Kickstarter, you'll probably find it. And Actually, forgive double. my slightly hard of hearing. What yeah. word are you saying? Double, as in two. Oh. Fine, as in fantastic. Wonderful, thank you. Um, and actually, maybe two words now that I'm looking at it. Maybe it's one it, word. It's two. I it's just two. found it. Um, but their Kickstarter project, they are creating an old school point and click adventure game. Um, awesome! And if you pledge to join Double in, Double Fine Adventure. Yeah. If you pledge, you know, I think it's a buck or more. You get to watch the video series of them making the game as well. Awesome! Um, so I'm super excited about that. So how much have they raised so far? They've raised 1.9 million dollars. Oh, they, cool. they requested 400 thousand to make their game. Oh, <laughs> oh, this is happening then, huh? Yeah, no. The, their yeah. goal was um, originally they wanted to 
prove that, you, that there was an audience for a point-and-click adventure game. Because the publishers... Yeah. Well, of course there is. Um, but, you know, the distributors, the publishers who put out the game, said nobody's going to want that sort of thing anymore. Uh, we live in, we live in the future, so great. Yeah. We live in the future world of first-person shooters and Mass Effects and Call of Duties. Here are the ranks. 15 or more, well, the finished game. Go read it yourself. Don't okay. read them all online because they're all long. Ten thousand or more. Lunch with Tom Schaefer and Ron Gilbert. A tour yeah. of the the offices. The guys who make the game. Yeah. So yeah. go in there if you like point and click adventure games. But um, there are more rewards, doing... but we can't post them here because they're too big. Yeah. There's actually or... a maximum limit you can donate on Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, of more than ten thousand dollars. They have. T- they've actually had two people pledge that. Yeah. Wow. Mm. People with money. People so help money. me understand what a point-and-click adventure game is. Um, oh God! Did you ever play any of the Lucas Arts? Yeah, Lucas Arts were the ones that the, the Monkey Island series. Um, you are a character in a world. Yeah. Okay. And you wander around, and there's they're they're very story driven. Um, it was one of the earliest forms of video games after the text-based adventure games. The yes. text-based adventure games, it was, it was, you know, it was an evolution. Of go the north. Adventure. You go yeah. north. Pick up flask. You can't pick up ye flask. Things like that. Yeah. You're, you're literally in, inputting things. This was sort of an evolution of that with graphics. It started... Well, okay. It I'm looking at their Wikipedia, actually, to yeah, find some examples. Yeah, that's going to help you. Um, uh, Day of the Tentacle. It was an um, evolution of, like, the... the Leisure Shoot Larry. Le- well, well, King's Quest and Space Quest were kind of, uh, kind of a midway between the text-based adventure and the point-and-click. Quite possibly. I don't know those. Because they had... You were in that environment, and you, like, moved around with arrow keys. Okay. One of them was, I think, for the Atari. It was Atari-level... Or Amiga, maybe. Um, and DOS-level graphics. And you would move around the world, and... Um, and you could you could like walk up to something then type mm-hmm. like how to interact, interact with, with it. it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, point, totally. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. They, they live on the people who've been making them most recently are. Um, no. Oh uh, no! Okay, I, I'm not remembering things today. Well, some other classics: the Full Throttle series, uh, the Indiana Telltale. Jones. Telltale has been making a lot of them recently. They mm-hmm. did the uh, they've done the Sam and Max series. Sam and Max. They did a. Yeah. Um, Back to the Future series. They've got a Back Ooh. to the Future um, series of five mm. episodic video games um, that are point-and-click adventures. Grim Fandango. Grim Fandango uh, is a big one. The Dig was was a big LucasArts one. Um, yeah. Um, so, I mean, the the they've certainly tapered off in popularity. Yeah. But there is also a huge nostalgia factor to them. Um I I tried to play through the dig and uh, it was it, it point and click adventures in in modern gaming terms are frustrating as hell. Yes, because, <laughs> because, because there there are points where you're literally just clicking on everything on the screen to try and get something to interact with something else. Right. Yes. You, you had to you know you get items and they were sort of like RPGs. Yeah. You, you would get you would get items in an inventory mm-hmm. and and you know use them at certain points and sometimes but you'd have to combine them in strange ways that you didn't, very could not strange. figure out and, and do incredibly obscure things and, and quite honestly I feel horrible for the first people who had to discover how to do it right <laughs> and, and I'm sure that 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 effort probably drove more people to write walkthroughs than anything oh else. So the the point click adventure is the reason the walkthrough exists yes yes <laughs> they were shared on message boards if you know i figured out this stupid puzzle yes finally i got it yeah, yeah. um so that would be great I, and i think it would be interesting to see what 
what ways they can kind of integrate modern technology into it yeah. and make it, you know, a, a wonderful experience. So, anyways. Um, so go pledge a buck for Double Fine. Pledge a buck for Double Fine. <laughs> well, I don't even know how long we've been going, but we should probably we've, Yeah, we've, we've been going a significant. I've got yeah. us recorded for um, an hour and a half at this point. Okay. <laughs> so we've probably been going about long enough. Um, Sean, any, any final thoughts? I mean, did, I know we're not going to solve the problem overnight, but... What? what? What is it that gives you hope that we can change? The fact that teachers, by their very nature, are passionate about kids. Hmm. That's where it's got to start. Yeah. And that's, and that's there. You still see that, and that's good. Hmm. Well, let's hope it, uh, let's hope it actually goes from somewhere from that. Um, well, anyways, um, we'll, we'll, uh, let, me, let me see if we've got anything interesting on the, uh, the forum spring this week. Um, it's time for the form squeeze. It's time for the form squeeze. I need to get like a little rubber ducky sound or something. We can, we can. Rubber ducky, you're the one. You make Jesus. bath time lots of fun. Rubber ducky, I'm so terribly fond of you. That was that was creepy good, actually. <laughs> I've practiced my Ernie a lot. <laughs> do you um, do you live with a guy named Bert? I don't. That's disappointing. It is. I live with my girlfriend. Her yeah. Amy. Inbox. All right. Let's see what we got. Um, well, What's your favorite pair of shoes? <laughs> that's the form spring question. And we answer the form spring question of the day when given the opportunity. Every time. All right, Kevin, what's your favorite um, shoes? Definitely my Merrells. Um, How do you spell that? M-E-R-R-E-L. E-L. I think. Let me check. I think it's I'm two L's. It is two L's. It's two can L's. I, can I answer for you uh, my Merrells, bitch? No. No, okay. Um, but no, if and it's kind of sad that we haven't talked about it on the show, but if you get me started talking about my footwear, I can go on for a period of time that makes people sorry they asked. Kevin is, is a woman when it comes to hats and shoes. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Yeah, I've, I've worn Merrill's episode all by itself. Yes, it is. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just ignoring Stephen talking about it right now <laughs> because I've got a large background of things that could come out. And so I'm just going to pretend he didn't say anything. Oh, okay. I know. <laughs> we'll, we'll just yes. leave it at that. If you would yes. like to be on that show, Sean, let us know. We'll bring you back. Yeah. I would love to talk. I'm, I'm a woman <laughs> when it comes to other things. We'll go on on that subject sometime else. I've been wearing Merrill since I was 13 years old. Um, That's all I'm going to say. Mine, I guess, I, you know, I got a new pair of Nikes. So, whatever. It's, they, they work well enough. You got a favorite pair of shoes, Sean? Actually, my Merrill trail glove. Yeah, so okay. you, actually have, you have actually a specific uh, style. Generally, yeah. I wear the, the jungle mock, but I have uh, wandered in the past as well. My Merrill sandals are falling apart, but I love them to death. Hmm. Oh, well, okay, so that's winter, but summer <laughs> and Colorado. Okay, no, no, we're not. <laughs> if, we, if we go down this, this rabbit trail, we ain't never coming back, <laughs> gentlemen. I'm just going to... He's going to post that response another and episode. move right on. Talking about Merrills. Three guys talking about Merrills. Oof. I don't know if we want to, want to end on this one. Um, is it better to be a good person killed or a bad person seriously maimed? I'm just going to say it's better to be a good person. <laughs> okay. I just, we'll just <laughs> leave it at that. Can we hashtag that cop out? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy with that. Episode 114, hashtag cop out. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, well, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up then. Um, Sean, thank you for coming on on such short notice. I hope, I hope we didn't inconvenience you too much. 
No, no problem. I enjoyed being here. Cool. Um, so what, where can people find you on the interwebs these days? I'm on the Twitter sphere at Sean Brackett, S-H-A-W-N-B-R-A-C-K-E-T-T, and also on Tumblr at the same thing. Have you, have you said that before? That sounded very, like, well-rehearsed. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally off the cuff. Well oh, done. Wow. Thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm applauding you. Uh, Kevin, where can people find you? Uh, Twitter.com slash Kevson. That's where I'll be until Twitter goes away. Mm. And uh, I actually have a new thing to plug. Wow. Um, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this on the show before, but uh, I am involved in... Uh, well, I have been involved with the Goodwill Computer Museum yeah, for, a, for long a long time. time. Um, mm-hmm. Late last year, things kind of fell apart there with, with just our relationship between the people who did the museum part and Goodwill itself and our visions for everything kind of diverged. So we ended up just starting our own organization yeah. <laughs> called the, uh, the Museum of Computer Culture. And uh, so I have been helping to uh, get that off the ground in the, uh, in the last couple of months here. And um, recently, we, I just uh, spent basically the entire afternoon rolling out our uh, social uh, initiative and our social presence on the Internet. So you can, uh, you can read. What we're basically doing is, is collecting, uh, for right now, our web presence is collecting oral histories and stories, just people interacting with computers. Hmm. Um, the first uh, story that was shared... Hmm? Didn't we do an episode on that? My first time using a computer. We might have talked about that. Our first time on the internet. Yeah, yeah, I think what we, we, we first talked time about on one time. But um, we have a, an inaugural article on there from uh, Phil Riles about his first computer experience with an IBM 1620 in 1962, and uh, coming from you know rural Oklahoma, you know this this farm farm kid, mm-hmm. and then you know interacting with this machine that you know used punch cards and I, I, all this I don't know stuff, if you so. would be interested but I would love to hear my mother's story about her interacting with her. she's we're she's looking a, for contributors well she's honestly. an old, she's an old school uh, computer programmer from oh like, yeah and, and I say old school I'm not I'm not trying to impugn your age mother I'm saying <laughs> you're, you you did this back before people did things with computers right um, she was I mean she got her degree in 1980 mm-hmm. in computer science pure computer programming Um so I mean, no, that's perfect. So we're we're looking we're looking for um, folks to contribute articles to this computer culture blog, and it's, that's exactly the type of stuff. Just you know, mm. stories, just stories from from working with different types of computers, and it, it's we're sort of trying to do that. You know, uh, very constructive, very um, explorative, kind of unstructured. Um, you know, educational experience. Huh. Just people telling stories about about this, the stuff that they've been through. Um, and we're looking for contributors from across the web. You know, anyone cool. with an interesting story to tell. That's so, wonderful. Yeah, the, and you can find that all at uh, computerculture.org. Uh, you can, and it has all the, the links from there. But it's you know, facebook.com/slash/computerculture, twitter.com/slash. I couldn't, I couldn't get computer culture because it's apparently too long. Twitter has an arbitrary character limit, but it's museum cc. And then um, I got us a Google Plus page. Um, that I can't say because it's like a million numbers because screw you, Google. But you can find everything from, from computerculture.org. Um, I really like that logo, by the way. <laughs> Thank That's you. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I, funny story about that. I, you know, my, my, I think my mom accidentally um, like drew it up just as, as an idea on a napkin once. Like, she did it vertically, and, mm-hmm. then, um, hmm. and then I kind of, I kind of like, turned my head a little bit and went, that looks kind of like a laptop, <laughs> um, and then did some more uh, stylization and 
Um, I wrote my first play, speaking of laptops, just thinking of stories. Mm-hmm. I wrote my first play with two other guys on the world's first, as far as I know, color laptop. Really? Yes. <laughs> like, it was super old school. It may not have been the actual, the world's first, but mm-hmm. it was a super old school, but it was an, a laptop in color, and we wrote a play on it. Wow. Um, when See, I that was would, in high school. I think, I think you need to, I need, Maybe you need I to write, because um, one of the articles that we found recently was about Jonathan Larson. Uh, who wrote Rent? Yeah, and, I know Jonathan Larson. And the the We're effort to because he wrote Rent on a Quadra, yeah. on like on like 140 <laughs> floppies in in the early 90s. And um, this guy recently um, acquired that they'd just been sitting in a box. Nobody sure. had ever had ever thought to really look through them. Yeah. And he recovered them and um, he he read all the data off of them and ended up uh, recovering the revisions to the files themselves so they were able to actually do detailed analysis of like his creative process really interesting. Uh, for this for this play and he was making revisions on the script all the way up to like a few days before the first performance or like the day before the first performance it was it, no, no no I'm just I'm saying I'm not entirely sure that's possible because he died he did. He did. Like <laughs> he right, died before right the show before opened. the first performance. So it was it was literally like a couple of days okay, before he died. Possible. He was yeah. he was still revising his play, and so that's that was one of the just incredible stories that came out of the New York, um, I, I think, New York Dance Conservatory or something like that. Um, I wouldn't know. But that's the kind of stuff that we're that we're writing about and that we want to put on the uh, put on the site. So okay. um, check that out. That's uh, that's computerculture.org. And uh, you can, of course, follow us and, uh, and follow all of our activities on twitter.com slash badphilosophy. Uh, thank you all for listening. We hope that uh, you got as good an education as you uh, possibly can. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, so we, we were in the, the stage of, of introducing kind of history of, of education, I guess, and kind yeah. of his... Well, we were talking about, like, the history and, the, you know, the important people who created the current system, and I said, you know who might know about this stuff? <laughs> Sean motherfucking Brackett. Brackett. <laughs> yeah. can, I, can, I, can I put that on my thesis? Like, <laughs> this thesis submitted impartial uh, fulfillment of the requirements for the degree, Master of Mother... Fucking education. Yes. <laughs> MMA. <laughs> MMA. MME, I guess, yeah. MFE. MMFE. MMFE. There yeah. we go. MMFE. Those are going to be your letters. Yeah. Sean Bracket, MMFE. Badphilosophy.com Hey!